have a Bible, Jonah chapter 4, we're going to get there momentarily. We were in a series right now about week 10, yes, week 10, of a journey through Jonah. And yes, you could take a long time through Jonah if you slow down. And I've, I've slowed down to a crawl. In fact, we're going to look at just one verse today, one single verse today. But the entire idea is this, is to introduce us to the need for Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith against a very secular pagan world or culture that we live in. I am convinced for a church, it is not enough for us just to teach Bible stories. We must teach doctrine and apologetics as well. Otherwise, we, we give kids these stories that are right along the level of Avengers or Star Wars or something else, and you can't decipher what's just true and what is fantasy. We must teach doctrine and the authority of Scripture, and we must teach our kids, our teenagers, and even us adults how to share and defend the gospel. Amen? If we don't, we find ourselves really in a, in a, a situation where we find ourselves modern church today where too many people have run for the hills because they had no roots in the gospel and no root in God's word. Now, Jonah gives us two pictures to look at. Number one, we see ourselves through the eyes of Jonah. We look in the mirror at Jonah and we see how we really don't want to engage the lost culture. We really don't want to engage those people, right? Because those people are just wicked. They're mean, they're wrong, they do all the wrong things. And what we really want to do is judge and condemn them, don't we, right? Now, we wouldn't say that out loud because you're good, cool church people, right? You wouldn't say that out loud. But really inside of us, we have these really mean judgments that we make against those people. So number one, we see ourselves in Jonah making those preconceived judgments about the lost world. But also on the other side of that, we see in Nineveh the world in which we live in today. We no longer live in a, a culture that is based on Judeo-Christian values. Newsflash, the days in which we live in are evil. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, as in the days of the judges, all right? And so we live in a different world than we lived in even just a decade ago or two decades ago. And so we need to understand that God has put us here for a purpose. And that is not, church, to sit in our holy huddle and just talk about sweet little things, right? It's to engage the world about Jesus and to be salt and to be light in the world in which we live in. Jonah is a picture of us. But we can't just be Jonah anymore. God knows where we're at. He knows what we're capable of. He knows he has plans for us. And he wants us to be obedient as we walk in those plans. i got two questions this morning. As most of you know me, I can't ever ask just one question, can I, right? If you're on Wednesday night Bible study, I always ask these questions in these groups and stuff. But it's never one question. It's always three or four questions. Because in a preacher's mind, one question leads to a second question which leads to a third question and sometimes a fourth question. It's just the way it works. You should try living with me. Bless their hearts, right? All right. So here's the first question, all right? What does it say about us? You might want to write this down. What does it say about us if we would rather see a person condemned to hell than saved by grace? I just, I just asked that question. What does it say about us if we would rather see a person condemned to hell than saved by grace? And the secondary question behind that is getting a little bit more on God's side of it. Does God contradict himself with his mercy and his grace? Does God contradict himself? Because he seems to say one thing, and yet he does something differently, not just in Jonah, but in your life and in my life. The wages of sin is death, but 
God does offer by repentance. God does offer forgiveness. And he offers mercy. And he offers grace. Now, I want to go back to Jonah chapter 4 at the top of the chapter. And I want to read to you kind of where we led off to last week, okay? Because it kind of brings us back in the narrative. And I want you to see again how Jonah went and he preached Maybe the worst, maybe the best sermon, that's debatable, whatever, but the whole city repents, okay? And so Jonah is just not happy about it. Let's read again, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was bummed out, and he was angry. He was angry. Have you ever been angry at God? Yeah, probably most of you have. I know I have been before, because God didn't do something the way I thought he should do something. Although he saw something I certainly didn't see, and he sees something I certainly don't see, right? But it's easy to kind of default to being angry with God about certain situations. This is Jonah, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Run, fallest, run. I tried to run away, Janae, right? Sorry. For this I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew it. You're a gracious God and you're merciful. Do you know how Jonah knows that? Jonah has experienced it recently. He's experienced the mercy and grace of God, and yet he has already taken it for granted. He said, I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in this kessed, this pursuing love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, because you're because your grace and mercy is not just for this exclusive group over here. Because you're opening up to everybody. Just take my life from me. Verse 3. Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. A.K.A. I would rather die than to watch those people be recipients of your mercy and your grace. Now, he didn't say that, but that's what he meant, right? That's what sometimes we don't say those things, but inside of us we're like, God, you're supposed to get them. They're bad people. Get them, God. Get them. Sick them. We don't like it when God says no. Verse 4. And the Lord asked the question. The Lord has a way. I want you to know this. And you know this in your own life. The Lord has a way of, of getting right to the subject of things, but doing it in a way that is growingly more difficult and more difficult and more difficult. It kind of grows into you. He asked a seemingly innocent question, but it has much bigger implications. Here's the question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Or how's it working for you? How's that going for you, Jonah? Like, how, listen, what's your state, your emotional state? What's your mental state? What's your spiritual state? I know your physical state because you just got vomited up and you just walked through the place you didn't want to be. Of all the places in the world, you had to walk through your enemy's city and proclaim that their judgment was coming and they repented. So I know how you're doing physically, but... And, of course, God knows how we're doing mentally, emotionally. But he wants Jonah to recognize where he's at. So the question is, hey, how's that working for you? Do you do well to be angry? Last week, I, every preacher, by the way, has a little bucket list of things he wants to preach in a sermon. And I used the Star Wars quote last week. Y'all remember that, right? I like Star Wars. It's kind of that thing. I just like Star Wars. And I, and I shared this quote. And I think it's still applicable, so I'm going to share it twice. And I'll mark it off the bucket list. We won't go back to it, okay? Is that okay with y'all? Yoda, the great philosopher, says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering, right? Remember that? Catch that. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. 
I want you to pick up in verse number five with me. This is our one verse for today. I have this clock up here, by the way. If some of you have noticed this clock, it absolutely means nothing whatsoever, okay? All right? It just helps me know exactly where I'm at in my sermon, all right? One verse, you think it's going to be a short sermon, we'll see, okay? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah goes out after God has already said he would relent because they repented, and he sits out in the outside with his eyes back towards Nineveh and says, I know what you said, God, but I really want to see the fireworks. Get them. Maybe if it was today, he'd get a beach chair, an umbrella. I thought about that today. Get an umbrella over my head. Maybe a little nice cold Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper, you know, in his hand, you know. Maybe have some music playing in the background, you know, you know, just some, some just good vibes feeling, you know. Maybe some old rock and roll and stuff. Say, like, okay, God, I know what you said, but you know what they deserve, so let's get the party started. Maybe Jonah was out there and he was quoting scripture to God, like God doesn't know his word, right? Have you ever tried to quote scripture back to God and make God do something? It doesn't work, okay? But maybe he was quoting scripture to God, like, Ezekiel chapter 25, we love these verses, right? Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 7, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. See, God, yeah, yeah. Now, now this is the time of Jonah, so they didn't have Ezekiel. But certainly he had the law. He would have known of the Torah. And so Jonah may have even quoted the Torah back to God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 25, vengeance is mine. I like that one. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamities at hand and their doom comes swiftly. God, you said it. Get them. Maybe, maybe we do the same, same thing sometimes. We look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God, you get those people. You get those people. I'll tell you something. God's not near as interested in getting those people as he is about getting those people. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Can you see the attitude of Jonah sitting out outside the city, sitting there fuming, angry. He's not happy. God, vengeance is mine. God, you get them. So some of you know um, last week, I didn't mention this last week, but uh, about a week and a half ago, we noticed, Lee, that somebody uh, was a, just a blessing to our church and decided to cut off the catalytic converter off our church van, okay? So crawled up underneath our church van, cut off the catalytic converter, boosted the catalytic converter because they wanted to be a blessing to our church, okay? And, and I got to tell you, in that moment, inside of me, I was like, and I even posted, God, I'm, I'm praying for you people. I'm praying the, the, the prayers of David in Psalms. You know, some of those Psalms that David prays was like, God, reach out your hand against the wicked, against the evil. Lord God, get them good. Get them. That's where, where Jonah's at, sitting right there outside the city. God, get them good. Get comfortable. Have your shade. I'm drinking my Dr. Pepper. God, you let them have it. Aren't we like that sometimes? We're quick to judge, but we're slow to give mercy or grace. Slow to love, slow to compassion, quick 
for critical nature, quick for a critical spirit, and yet God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you and I are a picture of that. Jonah was a picture of that. If you have a worship guide this morning, I'm going to give you the first one in the blank, number one. Our own disobedience and sin turns rejoicing into bitterness. Our own disobedience and sin turns rejoicing into bitterness. Do you know what Jonah should have been doing? Jonah should have been rejoicing that the city of Nineveh had repented and turned to God. That's what the church should be looking for today, right? We should not be looking for God, get them, but God, get them, so we could rejoice together that more people have come to Christ and repented. Amen? The Bible tells us in, in, in heaven, that's what's important in heaven. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. So I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now certainly God looks down with joy upon believers who walk in obedience. But you know what really takes the day in heaven? When a sinner comes to salvation, repentance, and following Christ. From heaven's perspective, church, the most impressive view on earth is a soul being saved from the wrath of God. That is the most impressive view. But Jonah's over here, God, you get him. Jonah, Jonah should have been celebrating what God had done in the life of Nineveh. Why wasn't he? It was his own disobedience and it was his own sin. Number two, fill in the blank. Grace, if you're at home, write them down, grace is not based upon the merit of men, but upon the glory of God. It's an important statement. Grace is not based upon the merit of men. The definition of grace is of getting that which we don't deserve, right? But it's based upon the glory of God, the character of God. Not the glory that we ascribe to God, but the glory of who he already is. I've all, I said this often. God's glory and God's grace are what really holds our Christian doctrine up. It really holds our theology up. God's glory and his grace. Who he is and how he acts through redemption. Amen? That's who he is. All right? Grace is not based upon the merit of man, but upon the glory of God. So when we start to judge and we want to re retract grace, we are actually working against grace. Because we're working against his glory. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, talking about this idea of being judgmental and withhold grace and mercy and label people critically with a critical spirit, those people. Jesus says this, but you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what we say in our culture, right? If somebody walks up to you and hits you in the mouth, what, do you, what are you supposed to do? Man, lay back in them, lay one on them, right? Jesus says this, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's hard. We have inside of us, especially as, as Western Christians who live in America, we have all these rights to the point that we, we worship our rights more than we worship Christ sometimes. We have the right to do this and the right to do that. We love our freedoms at the cost of obedience. Isn't that true? 
Now, I'm, I'm, I'm American. I, I love my freedoms. I think we should fight for our, our, our freedoms. I'm not saying that we should back down and be passive about that. But listen, when it comes to the end of the day, we are not citizens here. We are citizens there. And as God works whatever he's doing in these days, yes, we, we work hard to preserve the Christian way of life here. But know this, the most important thing is not our rights or freedom here, but our relationship with Christ and what God is doing here in the midst of all of this. Amen? So you say this, but Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, hey, love your enemies. That's hard. Love your enemies and then pray for them that persecute you. Like, pray for those people who are worse to you. The people who you look at and you think, those are the people I can't, I can't live with. I don't like, I can't be around them. Pray. You know what the most important thing you can do for somebody is to pray for them? Because prayer means that you love them enough to get in the, in the boat with them, so to speak. To, to bear their burdens, and if they're a lost person, to care about their soul, right? That's what prayer is. So Jesus says, love them and pray for them. Not stand outside the city and say, God, get them. So that you may be sons of your fathers in heaven, where he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, listen to this. This is what Jesus says. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even tax collectors do the same. Don't even the lost world love people that are like them? Don't even lost people, like, aren't they, some, most of them, even kind to some people who are like them in their own group, right? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So we have a distorted view of God's grace. We want to be recipients, but we don't want to be givers. And we certainly don't like when God gives grace and mercy to some people, to some people. I need to make this point. It's really important. There is nobody outside the scope of God's mercy and His grace. Nobody. In this day and time, it is easy for what I call cruel Christianity to emerge. Cruel cruel Christianity, it's great that I talk for a living, right? Cruel Christianity is looking at my own self-righteous life and comparing it to the world and saying, I'm better than you are. And because you don't line up to this and what I am, then, then you're bad. And, and we should hate you. We should live in bitterness towards, towards you. That's cruel Christianity. By the way, it's always been around. Think about the 11th and 12th century. There's a thing called the Crusades. Have you ever heard of the Crusades before? Crusades was a time where Christianity, in the name of Christianity, people took cruelty to others, forcing them into supposed obedience to God. Right? It was a genocide in many cases. It was violence. It was war in the name of God that God never ordained, right? Cruel Christianity. We still see it today. We may not be picking up guns and shooting each other, but we are prone to radical Christianity in the sense not biblical Christianity. Radical Christianity. Number three, we disregard the mercies of God when we judge and we condemn the lost world. I'll say it again. We disregard the mercies of God when we judge and we condemn the lost world. Uh, one preacher says, if Christians don't act like Christians, we can't expect lost people to act like Christians. Right? 
And so what we want to do is we want lost people to act like Christians when you and I struggle to act like Christians. Now, certainly there is a place for, for judgment. I'm going to share some verses with you. Like the Bible talks about being judge, judging in the sense that holding each other accountable. That's one thing, all right? That's not what I'm talking about here. We should hold one another accountable. I believe that every person in this room should have one accountability partner, maybe two accountability partners who can look into your life, trust you enough, and you trust them enough that you can speak truth into their life. That's a good, healthy thing, right? We neglect that in the church sometimes because we like to be lone rangers, right? But we need that. Husbands, your spouse should be one of them. Wives, your husband should be one of them. You should be talking about spiritual things, right? You need to hold your kids accountable. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about being judgmental. I'm talking about being uh, critical to being condemning of others in the world, especially the lost world. One author says this. He said, before you judge someone else, stop and think about all that God has forgiven you for. Think about that. If Jonah would have just thought that for a moment, Jonah would have been out here, if he just light bulb. You know, I love like shows where like the little light bulb shows up over the top of their head. Light bulb comes on. Oh, God. Like there I was running away, didn't want you to do, did, to do what you told me to do, and yet you still somehow preserved my life. In a storm, you got my attention. You saved me by the big fish. Yes, it was, it was terrible and stinky and, and gross, and you vomited me up. But then you called me again to go back and do it again. You didn't write me off. God, you forgive me more than I can ever imagine. You know what? One sin, no. Genetically, DNA-wise, we are already a sinner. But no matter if it's one small sin of the smallest caliber in our own thinking or one million of the worst kind of sins in our thought life, we are all destined for hell without God's grace. You with me? We want to compare others to us or us to others. The only person we are to compare ourselves to is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Now, Paul, I like Paul. He talks about, hey, follow me, do as I do. And that's okay to lead in such a way, but ultimately the standard of where we're at in our holiness and righteousness is none other than Christ. Amen. So stop and think before you're quick to judge and condemn. If you are not grieved over your own sin, church, you have no room to give grief to someone else's sin. I'm going to say that again. If you're not grieved over your own sin, church, you have no room to give grief to someone else's sin. Jesus says it this way in Matthew uh, chapter 7. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know the whole speck thing, right? You've heard these verses before. He said, why do you see the speck, the little splinter, as in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log, the two-by-four, the beam that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that little, little splinter out of your eye while there's this log, this beam in your own eye? You, this, man, Jesus is really nice here. He says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So church, if we're not grieved and dealing with our own sin, better not be quick to point a finger at someone else's sin. However, there is time to judge. Case in point, Jesus said in John 7, 24, he says, 
do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge or be discerning in certain ways. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? Future tense. Will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, you are incompetent to try trivial cases. Like Paul was exhorting them, stop going to, to, to court against your brother. Like handle it in, in the house. Do you know that, that we are to judge angles, angles, angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So we will judge angels. We will judge, we will judge the world one day, but not today necessarily. And again, I'm not talking about being discerning. Discerning is, is wise. We should be very careful to be discerning about the day in which we live and people we interact with. But be careful to don't write them out of God's mercy and grace when God is not done yet, church. James 4.12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I think about 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Samuel's coming down the line of Jesse's son. This morning I was lead, listening to my Bible study, and I, just, just, I love genealogies. I know this kind of sounds crazy. Genealogies sometimes when you read them in the Bible, they can be kind of boring. You're like name after name that I can't pronounce after another. And one pastor friend said, just pronounce them like you know how to pronounce them, and nobody will know the difference. But that's what I do sometimes in my reading too. I just pronounce them like I think I know what I have no idea what they, how they really pronounce. But anyway, so I'm reading in Ruth. It's amazing how God would, would, would cultivate this relationship between uh, Boaz and, and, and Naomi and then Ruth and, and graft Ruth into this situation. And then Ruth and, and Boaz would, would marry and have a son, Obed-Edom, who would become the, the father of Jesse, who would become the father of, of David, right? This is a beautiful genealogy, okay? But in this moment where Samuel's going down the line to, to, to a king in Israel, Saul has faltered. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearances and the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Judge with right judgment. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's the most important thing. Let me ask a question. This is a really important question. When we look at the lost world, do we see their behaviors or do we see their soul behind their behaviors? That's the question. Are we so angry and bitter at the world that we just see what they're doing? Or do we see a person who was created in the image of God, a soul that is destined for hell, unless we care enough to show them Jesus? Sometimes our passivity, sitting outside the city, judging them, in many ways, communicates condemning them to a lost existence in hell. Condemned forever because we don't care enough about their soul to love them. Not love their behavior, not condone their behavior, but to look past their behavior to the soul that's lost inside them. Jonah didn't care, he didn't love, he had no compassion. He was a recipient of mercy and grace like many of us, but did not want to give the same mercy and grace away to someone else. One quote I read says, judging a person does not define who they are. It really defines who you are. 
and that's true. Judging a person doesn't define who they are. It defines who you are. Number four, I'm kind of getting a point in here. I know, like, man, it's kind of harsh, preacher. You're kind of preaching a hard verse, and you're like, you're, you're like asking, like, the church is out there looking at the lost world, and we're condemning the lost world. And I'm fearful to say this, but I think we are. I think we are in so many ways. Now, again, I want to I point to there is, there is love that demands truth. In every love, there is truth. You can't love somebody unless you tell them the truth. And we should stand up for the, for the moral standards of God, the absolute truths of God, and we should not compromise that. I'm not saying that whatsoever, church. But we also, on the other side of the coin, can't remember how long ago it was when God called us by his mercy and grace. If you've been a Christian for more than five or ten years, the further you get away from that moment of your salvation, the easier it is to lose joy of that salvation and perspective of that salvation. You stop wanting to give it away. New Christians, they'll charge hell with a water pistol. Christians, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're like, no, nah, I'd, I'd rather just have the seat outside the city and watch everything. I'd rather be a spectator. God never called us to be a spectator. If you want to be a spectator... Well, there's no use for you in the kingdom of God in that sense. God wants us to be active participants in the gospel. Number four, by our hatred of the lost. This is harsh, but hang in there with me. This is not me, me, me. This is, this is I feel this is true. I pray that the Lord, Lord gave me this statement. By our hatred of the lost, we are subconsciously condemning people to hell. By our hatred of the lost, we are subconsciously condemning people to to hell. Well, I'm not, I, don't, I don't hate the lost. I'm just angry. I'm just bitter. Yoda says that anger leads to hate. You know, that's what I'm saying, right? But really, we, we, we let it sink into us. We let it bother us to the point that we get stressed about things in the world, anxious about things in the world. We get angry to the point that we just, inside we bubble, don't we? This is not the world that I grew up in. Amen. The world that we are in now is not the way it was when I was a kid. And for some of you, you look back, it certainly wasn't the way it was for you when a kid, right? The world is different now. And it's because of that gap, it just builds the hostility inside of us. What happened that things got so bad so fast? Well, a lot of things happen. Some of it's on us. But what happens is that anger grows and festers and becomes part of who we are point that we don't see the soul of man, we only see the actions of man. Subconsciously, we condemn people to hell because we really don't want them to be saved. 1 John 2.9 says, whoever says that he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. You cannot foster hatred and love Jesus. You can't allow hatred to run amok in your life be a follower of Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Proverbs 26, 24 through 26 says, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, it's like putting makeup on a pig. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred to be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Proverbs 10, 12. 
Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. The only way to reach the lost world, church, listen carefully, is to love the lost world. Not to love the world. Not to, not to be participants in worldly things, to give into your flesh, to be like them, to compromise. I'm not saying that at all. That's not what the Bible teaches us. But the Bible does teach us love. Because love is the only way you'll be able to introduce the lost world to Christ, who is the great gift of love, who can change their life, and then therefore change their actions. It's not the other way around. It's not behavior modification. You need to act like us. And then maybe at some point you'll get some Jesus. No, no, no. They need Jesus, a whole lot of Jesus, amen? So therefore, then their actions become more Christ-like. Then their life begins to look like someone who's been transformed by the blood of Christ, amen? 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The difference between love and hate, church, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who helps us love people that are unlovable. That helps us as Christians to, to step into messy situations in love, not because we condone behaviors, but we care for a soul. Historically, number five, historically, the greatest expression of love it's the cross. It's, it's, it's Passion Week. The greatest expression of love is the cross. The unconditional love of God pursuing mankind through Christ. Practically, the greatest act of love today is to tell people of the one who died on that cross. We hear so much about love today. And most of the time that we use the word love, it's really actually lust in our culture today. It's not love. It's certainly not biblical love. I'm on the record for saying that. We're on YouTube, okay? That's not the love we're talking about here. The love of God that is pure and holy and righteous, pursuing, unconditional love of God is expressed through Christ. And if we really loved people, if we really loved people, we would tell them about the one who died for them. As people who have been recipients of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And you can go infinitely down the line of that expression. To love them enough to tell them about the gift of God through Jesus Christ, the mercy and grace of God. That can save a wretch like me. I was lost. I've been found. I was dead. I've been raised. I was in my sin. I've been forgiven. To, to, to share the love of Christ in the gospel is the greatest expression of love that you and I could ever hope to get. Husbands, you should love your wives. Wives, you should love your husbands. We should love our children. We should love one another in the church. But the greatest act of love today is to share the gospel. That is the greatest act of love. We are called to love the sinner in the sense that we deeply care about the condition of their soul. We deeply care about the condition of their soul. John 15, verse 12, I told you this means nothing. It's clock. This is my commandment. Listen carefully. You ever heard of the expression, the law of Christ, referred to a couple times in the New Testament? This is what Jesus said. This is the law of Christ. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I, have loved you. 
you reciprocate that which you've been given to others. Oh, but, but God, those people, those people, I mean, I mean, they deserve it. You, God, did you, you know what they do? You know what they do to babies? You know what they've done to, to, to biblical marriage? Lord, you know their politics. Lord, you know they're an Auburn fan. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Try to break the tension somehow. Okay. Lord, you, Lord, you know these things. I know a lot of you are Auburn fans. I love you guys too. We can love each other in Christ. Amen. This is what the gospel does. It brings Alabama fans and Auburn fans together. Amen. That's the gospel. Right? Lord, you know what they do. You know what they do, God. And God, listen carefully, church. I think God whispers, you know what you've done. You know what you've done. And yet I forgave you. I extended you my hand of mercy. When you were unlovable. When you were as about as rebellious as you could be. You repented of your sin and I extended my hand of grace. I didn't get you what you deserved. I gave you what you didn't deserve. You've been forgiven. What makes us think that we're so special that God can't forgive others just like us? Would you pray with me? Lord God, today we have people in our life that we don't love. Maybe it's, maybe it's a group, maybe it's an agenda, maybe it's a party, maybe it's a movement, maybe it's a person. Father, today I pray that by your spirit you would convict us of our hatred, our bitterness, our anger. Lord, move us towards compassion for the soul of man. Father, this week as we look towards the cross, the resurrection would help us to keep the gospel front and center. Would help us to remember the price that you've paid for our redemption. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith, but it's not our, our doing. Father, would help us to be quick to invite other people, not just to church, but first and foremost to the mercy and grace of God. Destroy, Lord, anger and bitterness in our life. Remind us again of this gospel of grace that we've received. Father, is there anything in our life, Lord, against another brother in this room or outside of this room to the lost world, Lord, lead us, Lord, to repent, to seek forgiveness, to restore a relationship because that's what the gospel does. Father, there are many things we can learn from Jonah some of which, most of which, or what not to do. Lord, help us not sit outside the city, our culture, passively saying, God, get on it. When your son, Jesus, reached into the culture and got us. Father, we love you. Move us now to commitment. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'll be available at the altar to talk if you'd like to. If you'd like to come pray, come pray. Brother Will and our worship team is going to lead us with time and communion.